This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. This episode contains mature content like sex and intimacy. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show, you guys. You probably know that we are in a series called For the Love of Sex, and I have loved it. It is interesting. It's diverse. We've sort of drilled down into the conversation about sex and bodies and pleasure and transparency and hangups and sexual trauma, just in a way that I've I've wanted to. I think this is the series that I would have wanted to consume and hear more about in a way that is just like safe and non-judgmental and accessible. That's what we hope this is for you. And it, for me, it has been fascinating as the host and the interviewer of these amazing, amazing conversations. And so today's guest is so great. Oh man, this is so great. Okay, so heads up anybody who is married to or partnered with a man or 
you are raising a young man or a boy in any way. Like this is a really illuminating conversation for a million reasons. We're going to take the taboo right out of talking very frankly about sex and bodies and then turn into building really healthy communication skills and learning about intimacy and partner work. But with a real particular angle today, I think because of the ongoing dialogue around masculinity and then whatever the subsequent sexuality of that is supposed to be, I don't have to tell anybody listening that there is sort of a toxic masculinity that has permeated our culture forever, continues to, and really and truly ensnares our boys and then ultimately the men they turn into. It is a absolutely limited caricature of malehood, of masculinity, of male sexuality. It boxes in so many boys and men and then ultimately negatively affects them as well as their partners, their sexual partners. And so we have tapped, well, a sexologist and his credentials include a focus on male sexuality. So we're asking questions today around communication in the bedroom, yes, but also around defining positive male sexuality and why intimacy can sometimes elude us with, especially those of us with cis male partners. So from a cultural perspective, we've obviously seen a lot of hype and inflammatory language around the crisis of male sexuality. That's not a new conversation, really from both sides of the issue, right? Some people see men becoming, and this is just a narrative we see right now culturally, and it's been a politicized message that men are becoming too effeminate and they are lacking their, and this is finger quotes here, God-given innate leadership. Like this sort of John Wayne, tough guy, like the head of the body discussion, right? And I, I think men are often seen as lacking the basic skills to create intimacy and relationships. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes that's because they were never handed the tools. So I think interesting to point out, of course, is that the crisis of masculinity, if you will, certainly not new. People in leadership, the uh, politics and religion, of course, have been spouting alleged red flags on this issue for literally centuries. Like if a man is not behaving up to whatever these like cultural masculine standards are this cause for alarm. In 1122, a Benedictine monk wrote that the English youth of his time were, quote, sunk in effeminacy, all right? Like, we've loved to scapegoat men outside of this male, like, prototype forever. So all that to say, when we thought about adult sex education 101, <laughs> we wanted to go a little deeper and we thought it would behoove all of us to take a moment and ask, how can we foster positive masculinity in the bedroom? What does that look like? And how does it keep all of us in society healthier and safer? So I will just say this to you. Obviously in this show, the majority of my listeners are women, although men, I know I have you too, but women, this might be 
a really interesting episode to listen to if you have a male partner or husband. To listen to it together, it makes it kind of a safe conversation. It makes it a conversation that somebody else is having that you could listen in on. We really like tap into some critical ideas that are both biological, physiological, but also then like emotional, right? And psychological. And our men deserve for us to have this conversation with them and about them. Our guest today, you guys, is Cam Frazier. He is a sex coach. But whatever just came to your mind, you probably don't have the full picture of him. Cam is passionate about guiding people into, and men specifically, into greater self-love and self-awareness and empowerment in their sexuality, however that is presenting itself. It's not in a form or a template that's a one-size-fits-all. He wants your body and mind and heart to learn to work together in full alignment through the returning of your sexual energy and intimacy and passion. Cam is a certified sexologist, but he's also a counselor, a registered yoga teacher, a tantric practitioner, and a workshop facilitator. Because of his background, which he talks about in psychology, sexology, and counseling, yoga, and tantra, he is all about releasing old thought patterns, preventing you from both attracting and becoming the ideal partner and enjoying your own sexual self, your own body, and then ultimately moving you toward a more fulfilling sexual relationship with your person. This is so good. You guys, this conversation is so good. I love everything he had to say. I found it refreshing and hopeful. And I kind of want every man in my life to listen to this. I want my sons to listen to this. Everybody that I love, who's a man, a young man, or an adolescent should listen to this and get the narrative right from the job. I think you're going to love it. I'm so pleased to share my conversation with the absolutely wonderful from Australia, Cam Frazier. Cam, welcome to the show all the way from Australia. I am so delighted to meet you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to get to know you and have a bit of a chat today. Oh, this is going to be a real chat. That's for darn sure. So <laughs> I've told my listeners a little bit about you already, but I wonder if you could take a few moments to share just a little bit, and then we'll sort of drill down into it, but a little bit about who you are and where you are in the world. And if you could just shed a little bit of light on the path that you took to becoming Australia's leading men's sex coach. This is probably not what you said you were going to be in kindergarten. And yet here you are. So I wonder if you could like kind of contextualize your life for everybody and then we'll start, we'll get into it. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm tuning in today from Gabby Gabby country, which is the sunshine coast of Queensland, Australia, the East coast. And I live here with my beautiful wife and 18 month old son. The path that I took to kind of get to where I am today like you said, didn't always look like I want to be a sex coach. I originally wanted to do engineering. I was like, I'm going to get the, the good job and make the money and have a career and set myself up for success in that very stereotypical sense of the word. And in pursuit of that, I went over to America, actually, and I got a scholarship to play soccer at a university in the States. And I started doing engineering and I did one semester of it. And I was like, this 
is terrible. I can't. The worst. And, uh-huh. <laughs> yes, totally. Mm-hmm. And so my guidance counselor said, well, "What do you enjoy?" Which was fantastic advice. He said, "Pursue, pursue that." And I'd done a psychology class, and I was enamored with psychology and sociology and talk therapy and you know all that beautiful you know all those modalities, I suppose. And so I switched degrees to psychology, and I did a, a second degree at the time in philosophy as well. And so I was, yeah, pursuing what I thought you know would be my career from then on, which was clinical psychology. I was like really interested in being a clin psych and maybe going into you know, private practice or whatever, whatever that kind of looked like. Again, you know, these kind of lofty career goals that make the money and and do the things and get the house and stuff. And you know, whilst I was doing this as a young man, you know, seventeen years old, I went to America. I was playing soccer, so I was in like that locker room, you know, young male energy and and environment and so you know the the conversations that we would have about women and about sex and about masculinity some might call quite toxic i wouldn't shy away from using that word it was definitely like stereotypical locker room talk now i was literally in plenty of locker rooms throughout those four years that i was at university and you know i was a very insecure young man and like really did my best to fit in and so for me what that looked like was as an australian in america i really played up my australianness and i drank a lot and i really pretended to be this kind of larrikin boozing like australian young man and and that was a mask you know a big mask for me and, and the booze definitely was something that I, I used as a way to kind of cope with the anxieties that i had about not fitting in and being ostracized and being bullied by other men and then when it came to sex, my approach to sex is very similar. It was what's going to help me fit in the most. And you know, as people maybe are intuiting, the approach to that was quantity over quality in terms of sexual encounters. And it was that very stereotypical, another notch on the bedpost mentality. It was horrible. I subscribed to that idea. And that's the way I approached my sexual relationships with young women during that time of my life. And it was very much fueled with alcohol. It was probably about a period of four years there where I didn't have sex sober. It was, you know, those two things were one and the same. And so I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of like, just a lot of mental health stuff coming up for me during that time because of the masking that I was doing and, and the repressing of a lot of the emotions that I was feeling because of that. And so very serendipitously, I actually seriously injured my lower back, I actually fractured my spine. And through my clinical rehabilitation, I was you know, introduced to Pilates. And then my Pilates teacher said, you know, you should probably go do some yoga to supplement this rehab. And then my yoga teacher said, hey, maybe it's worth getting a massage as well. So massage therapist was like, you know, breath work and doing breathing is really helpful for you. And then my breath work practitioner was like, you should probably do some meditation as well. And I was just introduced to all these really beautiful modalities, right? And, you know, halfway through my yoga class, for example, or halfway through a Pilates class, I would have these surges of emotion. I would you know, be doing a particular posture in yoga and I couldn't hold that posture correctly because of my back, because it was quite sore. And I get frustrated, you know, that I couldn't do it. Then that frustration would very quickly just flip into like rage and anger. And I'd want to like tear, tear out of that yoga class and, and absolutely start screaming. Or during a Pilates class, I'd be doing like a particular exercise and releasing tension from my hips or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden I'd burst into tears and this wow. just like emotion would come out out of nowhere. And I didn't know what to do or how to stop it. And so I was like, this is weird. And 
wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. Like as a, as a guy, this is not right that I'm having these strong emotions. And so I don't want to give the impression that I was this enlightened dude at the time. I certainly wasn't. I, I started going to a, a school counselor and I, you know, I said to them, I don't want to feel these things anymore. I want this to stop. I don't know why this is happening and I want to get rid of this. I can't let I my I don't want these feelings. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And so that was my approach to it. And then obviously very quickly, I had a very good and you know, healthy counselor and they said, you know, these actually normal feelings. You know, you, you're supposed to be feeling them. And you know, I, I kind of realized now looking back that what I was doing was releasing physical knots of tension in my body, which is where I was storing emotions, storing my anger, repressing my fear, you know, all these insecurities that I had, I was holding them in my body and, you know, in a kind of musculature. And by releasing them physically, I started to release them emotionally as well. And then my counselor put me onto a psychologist and I started doing narrative therapy, which is really powerful for me personally. Narrative therapy is essentially unpacking all the stories that you tell yourself about who you are and then and rewriting them into a healthier version. And so the stories that I was, you know, that are relevant, I suppose, to this, you know, the stories about what it meant for me to be a man, you know, what does masculinity mean to me? What does it mean to be a sexual man? What does it mean to me a man in the bedroom? What does the intersection of masculinity and sexuality look like to me? And all that stuff, I started to unpack and relearn and, you know, create a version that I felt more aligned to and that, that resonated with me much more than like the insecure mask that I was wearing. I was hanging out with mates. And so there was a period of time where I actually felt quite lonely because I lost some friends Certainly. because I, because yeah. I didn't want to hang out and drink so much anymore. I didn't want to treat women the same way. I didn't want to have sex in that particular way. Like it just wasn't, didn't feel healthy to me anymore. And so by, you know, stepping up and calling them out, it caused a bit of a rift in our friendship. And so there was a period of time where I changed friend groups, but that personal transformation that I had with regards to like my approach to sexuality and my approach to masculinity, like not only I kind of described it cognitively here, but like at the physical level as well, you know, because I was drinking so much and I was quite anxious, I was experiencing, you know, I was ejaculating quite quickly because I was very tense and tight and anxious. I was drinking so much that like I was having erection issues as well because of the booze. I was not having pleasurable sex. It was just very performative sex because I thought this is what it has to look like because this is what it means to be a man and actually doesn't feel very good. And I wasn't asking my partners what they were into and like just communicating very well. But when I started doing all the bodywork stuff and all the counseling, you know, I started releasing tension. So I felt more relaxed in my body. And then I felt more confident because I was adhering to what I thought was, you know, a healthier version of masculinity for me. And so I started talking to my partners and I started asking them what they enjoyed. And I started actually breathing with them and we started actually having better sex. And so that like personal transformation for me, like I was saying, was like the catalyst for me to go, oh, psychology is super interesting, but I really like the idea of like sex therapy or relationship counseling or you know, whatever. And so I discovered the role of coach, right? And sex coach in particular, and went through my accreditation process and things like that. And and landed on sex coaching as a modality and you know specifically wanted to work with men i realized because as a you know cisgender heterosexual white dude like that's my lived experience and that's what i can speak into with some sort of authority and i feel like again in the most compassionate way possible it's that demographic of men that need the sexuality work the most you know it's like kind of straight white dude demographic that needs this work so uh, so that's what I do today is I, in, this is kind of cutting a long story short. What I do today is yeah, work with a lot of heterosexual men around sexual dysfunction and reframing that and exploring their sexuality and learning how to communicate better with their sexual partners. And really at the end of the day, a lot of the work that I do and a lot of the content that I produce is stuff that I wish I had heard 
10, 15 years ago that I wish someone had told me. So, so yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot of personal reasons behind the reason why I do this work. And then yeah, working with men is, is again, a real personal, personal reason behind that. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully that wasn't too long-winded. And it no, gives a bit I of- love it. Thank you. All the context matters. So to put a real fine point on it, what would you say in your experience, both personally and professionally, what are the, what do you think are the biggest myths or lies or narratives, however you want to frame that up, directed at men around kind of performing masculinity and even experiencing pleasure? What are the storylines that need to be reversed? Yeah, I think a major one is libido and that men's libido is like high and unwavering and unyielding and it's just purely physical and it's there's no emotions attached to it and like men just want sex all the time. Like I think that is a very detrimental story that we are telling each other as men and you know that we're telling women and that women are telling men because we all have that same story. Yeah, um, you know, that's no, right. No one's no one's been taken off into separate rooms and being like, no, oh, this is the story and this is the other story. We kind of all have that same narrative. And you know, what the data tells us is that, you know, like for example, we look at data from sex therapists in the US and Canada, and you know, 50% of couples that go and see sex therapists, these are heterosexual couples, 50% of them come to see that therapist for sex drive discrepancy issues. So one partner has higher libido than the other. Of that 50%, right? So that's a big chunk of people that see therapists. Of that 50%, 50%, the women has a higher sex drive than the men. And, and the other 50% is, of course, the other way around. And so that data tells us, at least from you know, the people that are seeing therapists for the discrepancy, is that there's a significant portion of couples where the person with the most desire or the most libido or the most drive for sex is the woman in that relationship. So that should be our first indicator that like, oh, this story that we're telling each other is not exactly correct. Then we can look at testosterone, for example. So testosterone is often conflated with sex drive, where you know we often like frame sex drive as like just being this thing that testosterone produces, and that's not entirely the case. You know, there's things like cortisol and dopamine and prolactin and other neurochemicals that are responsible for the desire that we have to be sexual. But you know, this idea that our sex drive is unwavering and never shifts and it should be high and unyielding that doesn't match with testosterone because testosterone fluctuates. Like for example, it's high in the morning and it's low in the evening. It also has like circadian cycles as well within 20 and 30 day cycles where there's some ups and downs of fluctuations. And then testosterone also fluctuates seasonally as well, where it's really high in the winter and it's really low in the summer or in colder and warmer months. So you know, if we're saying that sex drive equals testosterone and testosterone fluctuates, then sex drive therefore has to fluctuate as well. But again, we don't have those conversations and no one really tells us otherwise. And then there's, like I said, all these other neurochemicals that contribute to and hormones that contribute to sex drive and, and you know, the desire that we feel to be sexual. And we don't take those into consideration. And then we you know, can talk about spontaneous and responsive desire as well. So when it comes to like our desire to be sexual, our drive to be sexual, a lot of times we think that it has to be you know, I've got to get turned on just out of nowhere and now I've got to do something about me being turned on. But about 30 to 40% of men have also a dominant responsive desire. So that means like instead of the desire being there first and then they act upon it, it's they actually start doing something first. So they actually start maybe start, you know, touching their genitals or their partner, you know, starts kissing their neck or nibbling on their ear. And then from that act, they then go, 
oh, actually, that feels quite good. Oh, actually, I, I wouldn't mind being sexual right now. And so it's responsive to the action. And that's also prevalent in, in a lot of women as well. But we, you know, we don't really take that into consideration as well. And, and I think the reason why is because we can see it in media, we can see it in porn, we can see it totally. like in things that we tell our friends that if a guy isn't ready to have sex at the drop of a hat, something's wrong with him, right? right? Like he's, he's got a dysfunction. I think overall, we, like we see a lot of over pathologizing and over medicalizing of male sexuality. I think that's a real issue. But yeah, one of the major ones I see is like, oh, I'm not man enough because I don't want sex all the time. Or like, I'm, I'm not jumping my partner every five minutes, so I must be broken. And a lot of women carry that story as well. If he's not like wanting sex all the time, oh, he must be cheating on me or he must be like getting it elsewhere or I'm not attractive enough, right? Something that I think, you know, is powerful to acknowledge is like there's a lot of self-worth and self-esteem that's connected to how we perceive our partner being attracted to us. That's true. Right? So, so I've spoken to a lot of couples and a lot of women have shared with me that if like her partner, if he's not desiring her as often as maybe she expects, and she sometimes feels like I'm not attractive enough anymore, or right. I'm not, I'm not sexy enough, or he doesn't find me hot. And that, you know, for a lot of guys is not the case at all that they just don't have this yeah. desire to the level that she maybe expects of men. And so there's you know some communication and some self-worth stuff that needs to be to be worked on there. So that's a major one that I see. And I think that really needs to be dispelled. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. So kind of sticking with this idea that we've either poorly learned some narratives or the opposite. We never learned a good narrative around it. So we made one up or we adopted what we assumed or we picked it up from the atmosphere. I'm not sure, but it, let's talk about sex education for a second. What have you observed in terms of where people have huge gaps in sex literacy, if you will? So like, in other words, if you were going to teach a sex 101 course for adults, what would be a couple of the top two or three things that you would cover and say, let's start here with this either misinformation or non-information? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So the, the, the first one is, yeah, definitely what I was saying around like desire and desire discrepancy and responsive and spontaneous libido. That's really important. Another one is what's called arousal non-concordance, which is this idea that you can be physically aroused, but not actually mentally or subjectively aroused or vice versa. You can be mentally and subjectively turned on, but your body 
doesn't have any of those signs of arousal. So an example is like a guy might have an erection, but that doesn't mean that he's turned on, right? He's just maybe having a physiological response. A very classic example is if you if you sleep with men, for example, or if you are a man, morning wood, right? So oh, yeah. guys, an erection first thing in the morning, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's aroused and turned on in that moment. What it is, is it maybe it's a surge in testosterone that, you know, it causes an erection. Maybe it's, you know, REM related erections. So there are other types of erections that don't specifically correlate to him being turned on and being quote unquote in the mood. And that has serious implications as well as like maybe not so serious implications. But one of the serious implications, for example, is that male victims of abuse and sexual assault, for example, who get an erection from their assault or their abuse are oftentimes not only thought by themselves, or maybe it wasn't abuse because I had an erection, but are also like thought by others to have enjoyed the experience because they had an erection. And that's because we conflate erection with being turned on by that experience where, and a lot of men in those situations express feeling betrayed by their body because they did get an erection. And, and 20%, according to the data, we have 20% of men who are abused, sexually abused, result in ejaculation as well. So, you know, they, and they didn't consent to it. They didn't enjoy it, but for some you know, reason, a physiological reason, they, they ejaculated. And so there's this feeling of like, oh, I did, did I actually secretly enjoy it? Oh, what are people going to think? And so that's important to understand is like, there's a difference between physical arousal and mental subjective arousal. Because on the maybe less serious side or like the more relational side of things, like if you're in a relationship and your male partner, for example, you know, you're getting hot and heavy and you're making out and you're touching and you're kissing and you're kind of getting into the mood, but he doesn't have an erection, you can sometimes put a, a roadblock there for that couple. They can get, fall into the trap of thinking, well, ah, oh, he doesn't have an erection. Does that mean he's not turned on right now? Does that mean he's not, does he not want to be here? Right, because we conflate again erection with his interest and his desire to be sexual. Where I speak to a lot of guys about that situation in particular, and they usually share with me, I'm actually super turned on in that moment. I'm, you know, wanting to be here and I don't know what's wrong. I don't know why I don't have an erection in that moment. And because we're not very good at communicating that to our partners, especially in those moments, a lot of the times when that happens, maybe some miscommunication happens or some like assumptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some disconnection happens and they go, oh, well, this isn't happening. Where if you give a little bit of time, a little bit of patience and you know, focus on the pleasure and the momentum, usually the body and the mind sync up after a little while and the erection comes and, and you're good to go forward. So that is like a really practical example of like why it's important to talk about arousal and concordance and the difference between those two things. So that would be something I, I mean, I've done sex one-on-one -on -one classes before with adults. So that is something that I talk about. And then something else that I also like to really talk about is the difference between ejaculation and orgasm because ejaculation and orgasm are actually two separate physiological processes, which means that a man can ejaculate without orgasming called a non-orgasmic ejaculation. Oh, I've never heard that. He, yes. And he can also orgasm without ejaculating called a non-ejaculatory orgasm. And the ejaculation is what is responsible for the refractory period, which is that period of time after an ejaculation where a guy's like not able to get an erection again and his desire kind of drops a little bit and it takes about 20 minutes for him to kind of get aroused enough to get an erection. And that's kind of the average time. But if you have an orgasm that doesn't involve an ejaculation, then you don't get a refractory period. 
which means that you can have another orgasm and another one if you choose to and, and as many as you like really and it's important to understand that like we are all regardless of what our genitals look like multi-orgasmic we can all have multiple orgasms so that is something that like no one you know when i do classes no one has really heard about the capacity for men to be multi-orgasmic i've never heard those. anybody say that right and i think that like that as a idea is like important to talk about because it then leads to conversations around like what ejaculation symbolizes for a lot of people which is that usually it symbolizes the end of sex right if you're having sex with someone who ejaculates then once they've come it's all over right it's like yep wipe your hands have a cigarette, roll over and go to sleep. That's very typical, but it doesn't have to be that way. Firstly, like you, you know, who says that, that sex has to finish when, when your partner ejaculates or when you ejaculate, right? Like you can, you can still be sexual after that, just because you have maybe, you know, we lose an erection after an ejaculation. So just because you've got a flaccid penis doesn't necessarily mean that you you can't be sexual. And so like just unpacking that idea of like, if you don't have an erect penis, then nothing's going to happen. That also leads to like ejaculation as well. And like after an ejaculation, we can still be sexual with one another. Maybe you have to slow down a little bit because that there's like a vulnerability after an ejaculation and a softness and a tenderness. So maybe it needs to be you know, accounted for, but you can still keep on being touching and sexual and pleasuring with your partner after an ejaculation. So, and then beyond that, I typically teach a lot of practices like breathing and moving and, and things like that, which can help to distinguish between ejaculation and orgasm to help men essentially become multi-orgasmic. And then within that conversation as well as kind of all these little sub categories is I usually talk about prostate orgasms as well, because a prostate orgasm, just the way that the nervous system is innovated, doesn't involve an ejaculation for the most part. So gentlemen can have multiple prostate orgasms and just keep on going until they feel tired and they want to stop. And then there's a conversation around that, which is like, you know, internalized or overt homophobia. So those are kind of like the major key topics. And all of those can be unpacked and explored in a bunch of different ways. But those are like the major ones. It's like libido, arousal, non-concordance, ejaculation and orgasm, and prostate stimulation and anal play. Those are like the four major, major areas that we don't get any education around. Totally. I wonder, how do you coach your clients around specifically the idea you've kind of mentioned it a couple of times that we struggle with this and men certainly do, but so do women, which is better communication in the bedroom. So from a variety of angles, whether it's giving feedback or what we want, what's working, what we want to change, whatever it is, even if it's like kind of spicy talk, dirty talk, like that sort of in the moment feedback too. You're right. I think that's a barrier. And why is it, first of all, why do we struggle sometimes to talk really truthfully and honestly and openly about our sexual experience with one, with our partner? And how do you coach us through getting better at this? Because this is a key, a big key. Yeah, I think we live in quite a sex and pleasure negative society. And so like conversations around sex are still even though we're pushing for them to be more mainstream, they're still considered quite taboo and quite totally. stigmatized. And then on top of that, like we have a lot of, well, like each of us in a heterosexual context, like have baggage around sexuality, right? Like men have this baggage of they're supposed to know what to do. They're supposed to be the assertive, dominant you know, male partner. They're supposed to be the ones that are knowledgeable and 
if they start asking questions and start like having conversations, then it implicitly acknowledges that they don't know everything, right? I think that's one of the barriers to entry for men coming and seeing coaching from myself is like, in order to seek out coaching, they have to acknowledge that they need help. And that's a whole issue for men, generally speaking, is not seeking help, right? So I think that I think within that is is something there. And then also for for women as well, I think there's a sense of well, if I start asking for what I want, I might be seen as too much. I don't deserve pleasure. I think there, there's some stories there for, for women when it comes to opening up about their sex lives or being seen as slutty or being seen mm, as yeah. you know, whatever it might be, you know, the fear of, of being seen as sexual, right? And I would add also the fear of making your partner feel like you're not excited by him or he's not doing this right. You know, or you're criticizing him just by kind of giving feedback or asking for something and you don't want them to feel bad. We never want anybody to feel bad. Women have been conditioned to make sure no one feels bad at all times. And so I think that honesty feels a little bit like, how is he going to receive this? Yeah, totally. And, you know, a lot of men bring their egos into the bedroom. And so there's a real valid fear for women when it comes to opening up about like what it is that they want or what it is that they're not getting from their male partner. And, you know, there's even been a little bit of research on this, which has found that like men who are in heterosexual relationships that have what was deemed precarious masculinity. So like easily threatened masculinity. Mm, oh, interesting term. Yes. Their, their female partners don't open up as much about their sexual desire and about their, about what they want in the bedroom. Because again, they feel like as beautifully as you shared that it's going to threaten his masculinity. And oftentimes, you know, and this is maybe, you know, getting to an extreme example of this, but, you know, oftentimes men who feel like their masculinity is threatened will lash out and maybe they lash out from withdrawing affection or, you know, getting upset and frustrated and sometimes possibly even you know, aggressive and maybe even violent. So there's a real you know, valid reason why a lot of women don't share about, you know, what, what it is they want. And there's, there's, there's two great questions that I always do with my clients, which come from another sex educator. Her name is Maria Bazinski. These are Two questions are, why don't we ask for what we want? And we kind of covered a few of those reasons there. And that, there's like a multitude of reasons. There's no right or wrong answers, but it's why don't we ask for what we want? And then the follow-up question is, what do we do instead? So instead of asking for what we want, what do we do? Maybe we expect our partner to read our minds, right? And just know what to do. That's definitely a story I've heard. Or maybe we, this is something I know a lot of men do, is maybe they want oral sex performed on them. So they'll do oral sex on their partner with the assumption that maybe, oh, she'll give it back to me, right? If I do something for you, then you'll do something for me. They won't talk about it. There's just like an unspoken expectation or they won't be sexual, right? Instead of asking for what you want, I just won't be sexual because I'm not going to get it anyway. I'll just not even start to engage in it. And again, there's no right or wrong answer to this. It's just like your own personal, what do you do instead of asking for what you want? Maybe you just complain afterwards and say, well, that was terrible. You didn't you know, do this. And it's like, well, you never ask. You know? And so I think there's a responsibility, for, of course, with any type of communication for both parties there to be like, am I really forthcoming with asking for what I want? And then am I also listening to my partner or asking my partner what it is that they want as well? And so there's a really simple question that I always share with my male clients, which is, and this comes from Dan Savage and from his observation of the gay sex scene. It's apparently a conversation starter that is very common in gay sex scenarios is, what are you into? Right. And, and I think that's just like a simple, not loaded question. It's like, you know, what are you into? And asking your partner that or asking like a new partner that 
and just like get the ball rolling because they might go, I actually don't really know. You know, no one's really asked me that before. And so, okay, cool. Hey, do you want to try a couple of things? You know, like where do you want to start? Let's experiment. Let's have a bit of fun. And this is easier said than done because some couples have been in this rut for a long time and and conversations around sex can be really charged. But if you're able to take some of the intensity out of those conversations and take some of the seriousness out of those conversations and keep it a little bit more playful, keep it a little bit more curious and lighthearted, then that's going to serve you well. To give a bit of practical advice around this, sounds counterintuitive, but don't start having conversations just before you're about to have sex. So don't start the conversations in the bedroom where there's a lot of pressure and a lot of maybe, and maybe that there's heightened arousal already. And maybe there's like expectation that whatever I share right now is something that we're going to immediately go and do because it can be difficult in those situations to talk about things and to like have a clear conversation. So my suggestion is if you're not very well versed in having conversations about sex is to talk about sex in unsexy situations, right? So talk about sex in just like everyday situations, like when you're having breakfast or when you're going out and getting a coffee or when you're going for a walk or when you're in the car driving, you know, to wherever you need to go. It's like situations where it's a low stakes situation. Essentially, there's no, there's no pressure maybe mm-hmm. to immediately act upon what it is you've just talked about. And here's a, a tip, I suppose, for like, if you're in a relationship with a guy, strategy for getting him to feel more comfortable opening up about sex is to have a conversation with him when you're doing something physical together. So the dreaded, you know, let's have a conversation, let's have a talk. And, you know, you sit down across the dining table from each other, like an interrogation can be quite confronting for, I mean, for a lot of people, but particularly for men that they can feel on the spot and they might struggle to open up. But if you're able to maybe go for a walk together, or if he likes playing a certain sport, are you able to like throw a baseball around with him or, you know, kick a football with him? You know, I'm trying to think of American sports here. Um, <laughs> I, I play I play soccer. So, you know, uh-huh. something I like to do with my partners, we, we go down to the park and we kick a soccer ball around or we throw a basketball around. And that action of like getting into the body and getting moving can be helpful for especially guys, getting them out of their head and a bit more comfortable with sharing because they kind of don't overthink in those situations of like, oh, I'm going to say the wrong it takes thing. The gravi- like, oh. It lifts the gravitas a little bit too. It's just, totally. it just feels yeah. like a, let's chat instead of yes, exactly. let's talk. Like <laughs> I, I get the difference. Yeah. Even I feel that like, I think, oh, how do we make this a little lighter fare? Yes. Not so, so intense. I, if you were to say, cause you're a man, what would you say like, let's say we're having this chat We've we figure out a way to do it. Not in the bedroom. We're not about to take our clothes off. We're in motion in some way, manage the kind of structure of the conversation. What would you say? Most men, I mean, men are not a monolith, obviously, but what would be a couple of questions that a lot of men would like for their partners to ask them? Like, what is something they wish we asked or that we cared about or that we even knew to ask that wouldn't put them back on their heels, but would rather indicate, I care what we think. I'm interested in this. I'm down for whatever we sort of dream up here together. Like, I guess I'm asking for like little question prompts that you might put into the ears of the women on this, listening to this podcast who think I want to have this conversation. I don't know what to say. Yeah, again, I can't speak on behalf of all men, but I think some really useful questions could be, you know, asking about what he fantasizes about. Yeah, that's good. Asking about what he likes doing 
to or with you can be a good question to ask as well. Because, you know, for example, I know a good percentage of men enjoy giving oral sex to their partners, right? And so, but you might be like, he's terrible at it. And so asking like, if, you know, asking like, why, like, why are you doing this? Like, you're not like, maybe not that harshly, but like, you know, what do you enjoy it? And you might hear from him that he really enjoys going down on you. And so you could be like, amazing. Like, you know, would you be open to try a couple of new things? I know you really enjoy it. Like, you know, would you be open to, to doing this? So it could be a way to kind of get those sexual needs met from you by asking those questions. And then another question is like a simple question. Like, what do you enjoy? Like, what do you enjoy me doing to you? what does really turn you on? What do you really like? So those are like, yeah, some useful questions I would say. And some guys maybe will respond really well to those. Some won't. So hopefully, um, you know, if you just keep the lightheartedness and the curiosity, then they'll serve you well. And this can be normalized, right? Like I'm thinking about a couple maybe who's been in a relationship for a really long time and it's rutted out, right? Like, it's just like, this is what we do and it's perfunctory. And I'm just casting a vision here, but it is possible, even if it feels like starting the engine up on new conversations around sex and the bedroom and pleasure and bodies and specifics and fantasies feels like, Oh, this is nerve wracking, or I'm embarrassed, or this isn't what we've ever done before. So this is new. That may be true initially, but it is also true that we can normalize this in our relationships, right? This gets like more comfortable and easier, especially then once you try some of it out and the bedroom sort of turns up a little bit, then the the back and forth talk and communication, I think it's easier. Do you have to coach some of your clients? Obviously your clients are primarily men, but you work with their female partners too, around their aversions to this. Are people embarrassed? What's the deal? Yeah, people can be resistant to having these conversations because like you beautifully described, that's just their routine and they've never done it before and it can be very scary to do. Brene Brown talks about vulnerability being uncertainty, risk-taking, and that's kind of what these conversations are. You're uncertain. If you've never had these conversations before, I don't know how my partner's going to react. It's a bit risky to to tell your partner exactly what you like because they might reject that and they might be like, oh, that's weird. I so there is vulnerability and there's fear in having these conversations. So something that I, I think a real practical suggestion is listen to a podcast. Hell, listen mm. to this episode together, right? When you're going for a drive, just pop uh-huh. on you know, a sexuality-related podcast or when you're it's having, a, having a, a Netflix and chill session with your partner, like watch a sex documentary, you know, or That's just something idea. that like you can share and then talk about. So it's not necessarily you're talking about you and your partner. You're talking about the people that you just listened to or the people that you just watched. And so it kind of can can create a bit of that that distance and, and feel a bit more comfortable. Or buy a book, you know, read a book together. There's plenty of like really fantastic sexuality related books. So it could be like, hey, I'm just going to read this book and and you know, maybe you know, you can read it after me or you can read it's it alongside me and have a conversation. So that's like the first one. And then you're totally right. Once you start getting the momentum and the ball rolling, like the conversations become a little easier. That's good. You have talked about how a lot of men have a tendency to outsource their sexual arousal on something or someone externally. And one of your recommendations is for them to own their own sexual arousal and energy and response instead. I wonder if you could break that down for us a little bit and explain to us what that shift in mindset creates for both the men and their partners. 
Yeah, cool. So the the very simple analogy that I offer here, I suppose, is like I'll talk to a lot of guys about the time that they like they're walking down the street, they see someone who they find attractive, and they're like, "Whoa, she's so hot! Like she turns me on so much." And the reframe that I give them is instead of using that language, try this on for size. When I see her, I feel aroused. I mm. find her really attractive and I feel turned on when I see her. And that mm. subtle shift in language of like, she's so hot, she turns me on to, I feel so turned on when mm. I see her is shifting the onus of who's responsible for his arousal, right? Because in that first scenario, she's the one in that frame of reference, she's the one responsible for his arousal, right? She's so hot, she turns me on. It's her fault I'm aroused, mm-hmm. right? I can't do anything about this. She did this to me. That second example, though, where the reframe happens is I'm so turned on when I see her. I find her so attractive, I get aroused. The onus is on him. The responsibility on is on him. It's, quote unquote, his fault that he's aroused. And so what he does with that comes from his own responsibility. Um, so that's the simple little shift there in, in, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But that shift of men taking responsibility for their arousal, for their desire, for their sexual energy can not only help them explore their own body and understand their own body and come to terms with like their own pleasure. But also, you know, the shift that it has for their partner is he essentially stops trying to take from her. Right? It's mm. a lot of guys have this like because they outsource their arousal, they don't take responsibility for it. In order to feel aroused, they've got to get something from their partner. They've got to like take pleasure from her. And you know, you know, taking can be done healthily and, and with permission and, and with consent, but like a lot of men aren't doing that. They're they're like grasping after and taking from their partner sexually or their, their sexual partners in general. And that's because they're not getting that from themselves. And so they they need it from someone else. And so if they can like take ownership and responsibility of their sexual pleasure and their sexual arousal, then instead of taking from, they're sharing, right? They share their own arousal and their own pleasure and their own sexual energy with their partner, as opposed to like trying to get something That's from good. her or from them. And so that shift can change a sexual relationship, right? Wow. And, and I, I feel like maybe this will land for women that are listening, but I've spoken to some women about this and there's this sense or this like feeling they have that their partner is like needing sex from them, right? Like you know, there's this kind of like grasping, needing, clingy kind of like, God, if I don't give him sex, like he's going to fall apart. And that feeling of that, hopefully that lands, is from men like not taking responsibility for their own arousal. So one of the things that I share with men is like, if you don't want to be needy in that like, I need sex from my partner kind of way. And you want to you know, have an experience of like, I want to share my sexual energy with my partner. I want to share this arousal that I have and this pleasure that I have with my partner. I want to invite her in to this experience with me and be a bit of a leader in that sense, like a sexual leader. Then it's got to start with him exploring his self-pleasure, exploring his body, exploring what turns him on. You know, and, and then that kind of leads by example a little bit as well. And, and you know, hopefully if your partner's paying attention to that, she might also go, oh, it's okay for me to maybe self-pleasure. It's okay for me to masturbate. It's okay for me to explore my body here as well. And then you've got two people that come together from a place of like, you know, the analogy I think it was like your body is an instrument and you've got to practice your own instrument so that when you come together for a little jam sesh, you're both proficient in your own instrument so that you can play music together. And that's the, the approach to sex that I think is really beneficial is like treating it like a little musician jam session. 
And so if you're practicing your instrument, it kind of gives permission to your partner to practice their instrument. Oh. And then when you come together, you can then play each other's instruments and, and learn and, and, you know, um, and, and practice with one another. So that's like the, the reframe and how it can be beneficial for, for couples is, yeah, it creates a lot more curiosity, a lot more openness, and I would argue a lot more aliveness and pleasure at the end of the day because call me crazy, but sex is supposed to be pleasurable in my opinion. Mm. It seems crazy that that detail skipped so many of us in our coming of age. And as we sort of grown to sexual adults, that this idea of figure out your own body was framed largely shamefully, like, golly, you just can't keep your hands off yourself or it wasn't talked about at all. And so I just don't think there was a really a healthy dialogue around that, but how in the world are we supposed to expect a partner to know what to do with our bodies if we don't even know? So that just feels like elementary work that really pays high dividends inside a sexual relationship with your partner. I mean, let's just take the guesswork right out of it. Who could do it better than play your own instrument? Let them know how to do it. I have another one last question for you. Recently, Trevor Noah had a viral video and he was analyzing this Washington Post article talking about men in their 30s having less sex than ever before. And then he sort of reframed the discussion around the relationship between like affection and intimacy Mm -hmm. and sex for men specifically, he sort of suggested that men don't necessarily just need more sex, period, but maybe a spectrum of intimacy is what they're hungry for and what they're craving and what they've been missing. I wonder, I'd just love to hear you talk about this sort of trending issue for men a little bit. What's your thought on that, on what men actually need and how that affects their sex drive and even what kind and how much sex they're having? There was a lot that I resonate with what you just shared. So I don't really need to, to piggyback too much off of that. But what I will say is like men are socially conditioned for the most part to, to feel like they don't need intimacy. And I, I feel like, you know, I'm just kind of paraphrasing Trevor Noah here, but I, I really resonated with what he shared is that like one of the only socially sanctioned avenues for men to receive intimacy from another person is the act of sex itself. Right. So there is times where maybe a guy is actually wanting to be intimate. And as Trevor Noah says, maybe wants to be held or just wants to cuddle. And I say, from a personal experience, I have noticed that as well. And one of the biggest revelations in my own personal journey of sexuality is like recognizing that there have been times in my life where I actually didn't want to have sex. I just wanted to be close to another human being and just touch them and hold them and be held by them. But I didn't do that. I, I pushed for sex. I pushed for intercourse. I pushed for being explicitly sexual because I thought that was what was expected of me as a man. And that it would be weird or unmanly for me to not do that. And so there's been times where I've crossed my own boundary. And if I have crossed my own boundary in those moments, I have probably crossed other people's boundaries. And that is a big, scary revelation and realization. And I think a lot of men are afraid of having that realization and they want to be, no, I've never done anything bad. I'm, I'm a nice guy. I've never done anything wrong. They probably have. And most men probably have in those regards. And so that's the crux of like the, the point I suppose that I want to make is like there is a need for men to diversify their intimacy in terms of like how they get their intimacy needs met, whether it's through friends, through their male friends, start hugging your mates, start talking and being vulnerable with your mates. If your mates aren't supportive of you, like hugging and being vulnerable, 
get new mates, right? They're not your friends. They're people that you share a drink with. You know, they're, they're not actually real friends. Like if you can't be vulnerable with other people in your life, I know that's a scary thing to say. And I know people may be in situations where that's really hard to do, but it's super important to like have intimacy needs met in a diverse amount of ways. Because if you don't, and then you get into a relationship and your partner is the only person that you can do that with, you're putting a lot of pressure and responsibility True. on them as well. And that can be that can be detrimental to a relationship. So so yeah, diversifying intimacy needs is super important, like in general, but especially for men, because then that'll take away the the pressure that they put on themselves to be sexual, to have sex, to push for sexual intimacy when what they really might want is to be held. And you know, I really I like that clip from Trevor Noah, but something that made me really sad about it was when Trevor said that. You know, sometimes men just want to be held. The audience laughed. Laughed, yeah. And I think that really sums up our it approach does. to you know, men and their intimacy needs. Like, oh, guys just want to be held. Ha <laughs> ha, what a joke, you know? And it's like, that's still, the, and that's, that's the reason why it's really hard is because we still have this societal expectation that men actually don't want that or don't need it or that's weird that they should want that. So yeah, pushing back against that is really important. I think that's true. I don't think men are innately less tender less gentle of heart sometimes less in need of affection and intimacy it's just they've been conditioned to be certainly as have women but men are tender too and they deserve to be able to show up in the world in that way and to have their needs met all along the spectrum this is so great all of this is so good and so valuable and so under discussed i just it's no wonder that you are just everywhere talking about your work and coaching and leading men. And there's just not enough of you. There need to be a thousand more of you yesterday as a resource for men. And then ultimately for their partners, because this affects all of the fix, their partnership, it affects their families. It affects them in all areas of our life. It's so good. Can you tell my listeners just where to find you? I promise you, I've had people listening going, I need I need this times a hundred more hours of it. And so where can they find you in terms of everything you've put in the world and to get more resources? Firstly, thank you so much for those very lovely words. It's very, I feel very humbled and, and I'm very appreciative of that. And I would suggest people to head over to my Instagram accounts, which is the Cam Fraser. I'm actually the Cam Fraser on all social media platforms. So if people just go onto their favorite one and find me, if you go on there, I promise you, you'll learn something new. That's kind of my guarantee. And yeah, send me a message. You know, I've got a podcast myself called the Men's Sex and Pleasure Podcast where I have conversations like this all the time. But yeah, shoot me a message. I'm super happy to receive messages from people and answer some questions and give some, you know, a little pieces of advice as much as I can. So yeah, that'd be my suggestion is like, just hit me up on social media. We will link that for everybody, listeners. Okay, this is literally the last question, genuinely. I ask every guest this in every series. This is always the final question and I would love for you to answer it however you feel like can answer it earnestly or you can answer it just absurdly it's up to you the question is what is saving your life right now oh wow what a question hey mm -hmm. i think what is saving my life right now is i'm halfway through a like men's program with a, a friend and colleague of mine and I, I wouldn't necessarily say that that program is saving my life but the intention behind why I started doing that program is saving my life. And that intention was to bring more joy and playfulness into my life. That's good. Because if I, if I didn't do that, 
I would be like a little workaholic hermit like person who never mm-hmm. yeah, never enjoyed the you know subtleties and nuances of life. So being really intentional about like playing with my son and going on bushwalks with my wife and playing music together and just having some fun, that's saving my life right now. For sure. I love that. That's such a good answer. That's a perfect answer, actually. Cam, thank you so much, really, for coming on the show and for talking so like frankly about this with us and and really just just the work that you're choosing to do in the world I really am serious it just matters I know that you know that I know that your clients are probably experiencing like renovation and revolution in their bodies and in their relationships and that has to be incredibly rewarding but it's just refreshing to hear you talk today and to just know there's a better and a truer story for men and sons and brothers. And I'm thrilled to hear it. And so I'm in your corner and I, any way I can ever support your work, please let me know. And I'll be so, so happy to do it. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me and for using your platform to have conversations like this. It's really, really cool. Absolutely. Okay, as mentioned, if this is something that you're interested in, if this is something you want to know more and become more empowered in, this is something to layer into your relationship and increase your communication and even your like sexual understanding of one another. Maybe this is a good episode to listen to with your partner and let Cam and I carry the emotional load of the conversation and just find a place that you could hook into it. There were so many. And I would just love to see a generation of boys rise up in a healthier version, a healthier narrative of who they are, what they deserve, the various shades of their, not just sexuality, but their needs around intimacy and permission to embrace it all right? To not have to fit this, this job description of this aggressive, assertive, has no questions, has no needs, has no intimacy instincts like man, right? I think this is a really great reversal of toxic masculinity. And so I'm so glad you were here and we will just continue to host this conversation. I think it's important. I'd love for, I'd love for my community to experience a greater degree of health and honesty and exposure sexually, like that our sex lives could be a source of just joy and flourishing and truthfulness and I'd love to see a profound absence of shame and embarrassment and silence and confusion. So I think that's why we're having this whole series. Don't miss next week's episode. You guys more to come. And thanks for your like really high engagement on this series. I've just, we've loved having your feedback and can't wait to bring you more. See you next week. 